Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear your word and also do it through Christ our Lord. Amen. This past November, I had a double transplant, a liver and a kidney. And I was asked to speak about it a little bit this morning and relate it to a Bible verse, which was a little difficult because the whole process is made up of so many different parts and transplants weren't around when the Bible was written. But I picked Matthew 21, 18 through 22. In the morning, when he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the side of the road, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. Then he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. Whatever you ask for in prayer, with faith, you will receive. What I would like to talk about a little bit is the mental aspect of getting a transplant. You know, you have to realize that the first thing that has to happen is you have to be sick. And when I say sick, you literally have to be dying before you can even get on the transplant list. But you can't be too sick because if you're too sick, they won't put you on the list. The other things you have to deal with. Every day, you get a little sicker. You sit around and you wait for somebody to literally die for your own benefit. And this can be a little hard to do. I was talking to one of my doctors one day, and he was telling me about how many transplant patients go into depression while they wait for their transplants. You know, the pressure of knowing that you're going to die if you don't get it, the pressure of knowing somebody else has to die for you to get it. And a lot of these people never get out, even after the transplant, they're depressed. Well, I was never depressed. I had complete faith from the very beginning that I'd survive. I just knew it. I had complete faith that the outcome of my surgeries were going to be good. I dealt with the waiting around for another person to die by. I made it a rule. Never wish or hope anything would happen bad to somebody else for my benefit. And I remembered back with the post-chaplain at VMI told my class one day, 
you know, God made the earth. He made man and put man on the earth, but he gave us certain rules we have to live by. For example, if you go to the top of the Empire State Building and jump off, no miracle's going to save you. The laws of gravity say you're going to fall to the ground, and when you hit the ground, you'll die. There's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So things happen that we have no control over. And I also knew that whoever I got my organs from wanted that to happen. He didn't want to die and just, you know, be buried in the ground. He wanted to let somebody else have a chance to live. And because of that, I looked at receiving the organs as a gift. I had no guilt because I never wished it would happen. It just did, and it was out of my control. I hope that everybody will remember that faith alone isn't quite enough. You have to use the, your faith in something to give you the strength to do it. When Jesus says you can move the mountain, I don't think he meant the mountain would just get up and move because you had faith that it would. The faith should give you the strength to get a pick and a shovel and move the mountain and know that you can do it and be successful in doing it. Thank you, newbie. About a year ago, the theologian Craig Barnes wrote an article about the advice that college graduates often get this time of year when colleges bring in big name speakers to confer some wisdom on that year's graduates. Barnes had been to his daughter's college graduation and he was surprised that the speaker basically said word for word pretty much the same thing Barnes had heard at his own college graduation. You are among the brightest and the best we have ever seen. Set your goals high, dream your own dreams, chase your own star. You can be whatever you want to be. Now, maybe this doesn't sound like terrible advice. In fact, it probably sounds like advice we've given to people we loved or advice we've heard from people we know have our best interest at heart. But Barnes points out that viewing this advice through a theological lens quickly reveals its flaws. Among the best and brightest? Well, hardly. I mean... Pretty much every class of graduates is as talented and as fundamentally flawed as the classes that have come before. Chase your own star? Well, even when they chased God's star, the Magi got hopelessly lost. You can be whatever you want to be. According to Barnes, this is the worst lie of all, because embedded in that statement is the suggestion 
that it's up to us to assemble the life we want, to make good choices, to work hard, and to enjoy the rewards. Barnes has come to know what most of us learn sooner or later, that the adage that if we work hard enough, we can do or be or get whatever we want not only isn't true, it is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel which promises that to find your life, you must lose it, that to follow God, you must pick up your cross, that to experience resurrection and transformation, you must first experience death. Which is why, at the end of this story we heard today about Jesus and a fig tree that doesn't give him what he wants when he wants it, it is surprising to hear Jesus offer the equivalent of what kind of sounds like graduation day advice. Whatever you ask for in prayer, with faith, you will receive. I'm going to say that one more time to make sure you heard it. Whatever you ask for in prayer, with faith, you will receive. This sounds suspiciously like a recipe for getting what we want when we want it. And most of us have discovered that that particular recipe does not always work. And we've discovered it because we've tried it. We have prayed for our circumstances to change, for the disease to go away, for the relationship to be restored, for the injustice to be overturned, to find a job or to fall in love or to have a child. We have prayed fervently and with deep faith. And what we've prayed for hasn't come to pass, at least not the way we hoped it would. So how do we make sense of what Jesus is saying here? Well, as is often the case, biblically at least, context matters. In his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, Tom Long points out that this story about the fig tree comes just after Jesus has gone to Jerusalem and visited the temple. Now, the temple wasn't just one big place of worship like this sanctuary. It was an enormous complex of courtyards and buildings. When Jesus enters this complex, the first thing he sees is people who are selling animals for sacrifices, and others who are exchanging foreign money for coins that people can leave as an offering. When he sees this, Jesus has a temper tantrum. He drives out those who are buying and selling and changing money, and he does this not because what they are doing is inherently wrong. They were simply practicing their faith through means that had been established, making sacrifices and offerings as part of worship, not unlike what we do every Sunday in our rituals of prayer and music and taking up an offering. But Jesus gets angry because throughout his ministry, he has seen again and again that those who are most obsessed with right practice 
have taken these rituals of worship and used them in ways that distort God's intention for love and mercy and justice for all of God's people. Jesus sees that the people have lost sight of who God is and what it means to live as God's people. In other words, their faith is no longer bearing fruit. After he overturns the tables in the temple, Jesus reminds people of their calling when he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. He's quoting Israel's prophets, those who preach that the temple was never meant to be an end in itself. The temple was to be a house of prayer, a place people would experience intimate connection with God and then be inspired to bear fruit in the world. Instead, it had become a place of exclusion where only those deemed righteous could enter, and those who were considered unrighteous, which at that time included the sick, the lame, the blind, children, they were all kept out. The temple was the equivalent of a fruit tree that appeared to be healthy with thick green foliage, but which on closer inspection had no fruit on its branches. So just as Jesus withers that fig tree with a word, he clears the temple of those who have reduced their relationship with God to a transaction. Then, immediately after, he brings into the temple those who have been left out, healing the blind and the lame, welcoming children. Understood in this context, we see that that cursed fig tree was not simply an unlucky plant at the wrong place and the wrong time, but a symbol of the people of God, people praying and worshiping and going through all the motions, but not bearing fruit. So maybe that gives us some context for that fig tree, but still, what do we make of Jesus' explanation to his disciples that whatever you ask for in prayer, with faith, you will receive? Newby offered us today an amazing example of the power of faith to overcome obstacles. As he reminded us, faith cannot just be a passive force that invites us to sit back and wait for God to do what we think God should do, whether for us or for others. Faith is what compels us to live and act and work to enact the promises of God that we pray for. Prayer connects us intimately and in real time with God and with God's intentions for the world. But it is faith that turns prayer into action that brings those intentions to life, that bears fruit. Faith cannot just be belief in a set of doctrines, but a way of seeing and moving through the world. Radical trust in the promises of God. 
Faith is what turns prayer into action that shares God's promises with all God's people. The physician B.J. Miller lost both of his legs in a terrible accident when he was a 19-year-old college student. After the accident, he describes feeling lost at sea, trying to reimagine his life to figure out who he was without the body he had relied on, how to live with pain, both physical and emotional. He felt overwhelmed by the obstacles he faced, but he noted that it was the people who surrounded him with their love and support that helped him keep going. Thanks to my family and friends, he says, I was out to sea, but I could see land. They held the shore for me. They held the other end of the bridge. They loved me and touched me and looked at me and did not condescend. They cared for me while I came to love myself again. It was like, okay, guys, I have faith in you, and you still seem to care about me, so I will try. And eventually, it filled in enough gaps that I could walk back to land. Now, Miller puts what he learned into practice as he works with chronically ill and dying patients to help them experience peace and meaning and fulfillment and love even as their lives come to an end. Whatever you ask for in prayer with faith, you will receive. Prayer with faith is prayer in action, grounded in God's intentions. It is prayer that builds bridges for those in need, prayer that holds the shore for those lost at sea. These days, it can feel like we're all lost at sea, that we have all lost our way, not to mention our connection with God, the God of peace and justice and hospitality and unconditional love. It can feel like the world is so filled with hatred and division, with death and destruction, that the bridges to the shore have all been burned away. But what if Jesus' words to the disciples were for such a time as this, which can feel like that time that Newby described when we are waiting and each day unsure of whether we're going to get where we need to be. This is a time when the world desperately needs not only prayer, but prayer that leads to action, prayer that bears fruit, prayer that remains fiercely hopeful and relentlessly optimistic because we live in God's world and we are God's people a people defined by life and love, not by death and hate. And we are the people who make up God's church, which is a place defined not by transaction, but transformation. Not by the exclusion of those deemed unworthy, but by hospitality for everyone, especially the least and the lost and the left out. 
Our world desperately needs fruitful faith that connects us to God and awakens us to God's intentions through prayer. Prayer that inspires us to take up causes that every wise social critic says are hopeless. Prayer that enables us to plant seeds of reconciliation and mercy and justice, even when every seed planted in this soil has failed to sprout. Prayer that sees those who are drowning in desperation and compels us to find ways, even when it is messy and complicated, to stand with those who are sick in body or spirit, who show up at our borders, who are shackled by addiction, who are wounded by systemic racism. We need prayer that pays attention on purpose here and now to all the ways we distort God's love and mercy. We need prayer that compels us to open wide the doors of our hearts, the doors of our churches, so that all might hear the good news of God's love. Our world needs prayer that turns our faith into action, prayer that bears fruit, fruit that offers abundant life, not just to those of us who pray, but to all God's children everywhere. Amen.